This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 527. And the quote of the day is, you don't set out to build a wall. You don't say, I'm going to build the biggest, baddest, greatest wall that's ever been built. You don't start there. You say, I'm going to lay this brick as perfectly as a brick can be laid. And you do that every single day, and soon you have a wall. Listening to the Drummers Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. And beyond. And beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for checking it out. And if this is your first time listening, thanks for being here. If you've been here for a while, thank you as well. And this conversation is great. Because I got a rare breed here. I got someone who was born and raised in LA. There's not many people who who I've met over the years who have, who not only live in LA but are born and raised. Normally, it's oh, you're from LA. Uh, where do you live? Or where are you from? I should say. Sorry. Uh, but this is Glenn Sobel. He was born and raised here in Los Angeles, California, and. Glenn is recently most notably known for his work with Alice Cooper. So he's been playing with Alice Cooper since 2011. Uh, but he's also been the drummer. He, he filled in for, for Tommy Lee for a short period of time when he was sick. And also he plays with the Hollywood Vampires. He's played with Richie Sambora, Orianthi, Beautiful Creatures. The man has been around for a while and has a great reputation. And we talk a lot about how he built his career and some of the things that we sort of think are for other people, or we think that maybe uh, everyone else has like the secret or something like that. And you hear him explain it all where it's just a matter of, of hard work, you know, making sure that you're, you're working on the right things, making sure that you're developing the right relationships, making sure you're being the right type of person. And he also has just tons of wisdom and stories and all sorts of stuff weaved into this conversation. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with Glenn Sobel. Glenn Sobel, what's happening, buddy? How are you, Nick? What's up? Uh, I'm doing well. I was just thinking, I was like, man, we probably could have done this. uh, We probably could have done it in person since we're in LA. Yeah. You never know where people are these days if you talk to them online. Well, I, and especially you, I wasn't sure, you know, if you're on the road or, or what's happening. But the other thing is like, you could be six miles away from me and, and it would take me, you know, an hour and a half to get there and an hour and a half to get back. So maybe Skype is the way to do it. No, there's no traffic in LA. It's beautiful. <laughs> Someone sent me a message the other day and they were like, this is the first time I've ever come to LA. And they were like, oh my God, there's so much traffic here. And I was like, you didn't know that? Like you never, it's the one trade off, you know, it's, there's so many things. I won't bore you with all the wonderful things about LA that you already know about, but traffic, you know, you deal with it. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. But you know, the, the other side of it too, like if you live in New York, it still takes you an hour to get anywhere. Of course. Like even if you take the subway, you know, it's like it, you don't have to drive, but you're still, I actually, I would rather, I would rather sit in traffic and be able to like be in my own space listen to my own stuff like versus being on the subway with like someone smelly and leaning up against you and like but that's so new york yeah yeah that's (laughs) that's what you have to do i guess (laughs) but you're born and raised i'm born and raised la it's all i've ever known love to travel but it's always great to come home i was just gonna say you're you're a rare breed of people who born who were born and raised in la there's not a lot of you out there no, we're pretty rare. Yeah. And so did you, you know, like you grew up anywhere else and people are like, oh man, not, maybe not always, I can't wait to get out of here. You know, even for me, like the East Coast will always be home for me. Uh, but I was always itching to like go and, you know, move to LA and, and explore and all those sorts of things. But like living in LA, did you ever have the itch of, I got to get out of here or or this? No, never. No. No. And when the drum bug and music bug really bit me, I knew I was lucky enough to be in the right place. Right. So how did how did that whole thing happen? How did you get into playing? Oh, man, how did it start? Um, I guess if you want to go back that far, it's like I, I was 10 years old about and just playing basketball at my friend's house across the street. And his older brother, his cooler older brother had Rush 
exit stage left. Mm-hmm. And he was blasting that through the open window in the living room. And he was like, yeah, man, check it out. This dude does a drum solo. It's so amazing. And I heard that. And I thought, wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. I went out and bought that like the next day and set up the trash cans upside down, had a couple of these bamboo sticks and I would pr- pretend to play along. I had the exit stage life and also that other earlier live one by them, uh, All the World's a Stage. Mm-hmm. That had the big crowd sound. And so I could pretend like, oh, that crowd, they're, they're cheering. That's for me, you know. And I didn't know <laughs> what I was doing, but I was kind of pretending to, to play along to these Rush tunes. And then I got into Zeppelin, same deal, got the, <clears throat> the live record first. They always had drum solos, the live records. So I got Song, <clears throat> song Remains the Same. And then somehow I got into beginning music class in middle school in seventh grade. That It used to start in seventh and go through ninth back then. And so seventh grade, every kid in that music class wanted to play drums. Every guy did. So we had to pick numbers out of a hat. And there were two numbers left and two guys left. And I picked the right number, you know, major <laughs> life crossroads thing. And I didn't even know it. But I can picture it like, you know, really clear still. You could have ended up a tuba player. Oh, my God. Yeah. Thank God I got the right number. <laughs> but yeah, music education, schools, I mean, it all connects to that. If it wasn't for music in public school, I probably wouldn't be doing this. And in high school, I got into marching band, concert band, jazz band, the the musicals, everything I could. I think uh, – live, and I, I could be wrong, but I would imagine that living in a city like LA, there's <clears> – <throat> Whatever you want to call it, there's like it's the entertainment capital of the world, right? Sure, sure. Does that influence you as a kid growing up? Like, do you see sort of like the glitz and glamour of Hollywood and 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 think that you want to be a part of that world, or was it just like I don't know, it was just like growing up in the suburbs like anywhere else? I think it could hit you no matter where you are in mm-hmm. America, you know, because of everything that we see or we saw on MTV and of course the radio and records and Back then, you'd have to, if you wanted to hear something, you either had to wait for it on the radio or you had to go and buy it. And that's a very familiar experience for so many people all across the country. So it doesn't matter where you are. And I didn't really start hanging in Hollywood until uh, 16, 17, played my first club in Hollywood at the age of 17. And that just made it like even more so like, yeah, I want to do this. But I already knew pretty much. Right. Was that the that, that was that was it though for you? You were like, this is what I'm going to do for a living. Yeah, you know what? I think I really solidly knew that when I went to my first Nam show, and I was 17 when that happened. Again, grew up in L.A., so the Nam show was Anaheim, like an mm-hmm. hour. And one of my best best friends, who I was just talking to the other day, uh, Michael Dubin, his grandfather owned Frank's Drum Shop in Chicago, mm-hmm. which is a famous. Everybody from that goes way back in the biz, all the veterans of the drum biz, they know Frank's drum shop from way back. And so Mike had all the connections. He was able to get me in to the NAMM show. I was going to say, was it that, was it hard to get in then? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know what? I think actually the first year I did it. Yeah. Um, I had a business card. My dad had a printing business and he printed up a business card for me. And that's all you needed to kind of just BS your way in. Got you. (laughs) <laughs> there was a service charge of 25 or 50 bucks, something like that, but that got you a badge and I was able to get in. And that's when I was just completely 100% sold. I want to do this. You know, I met so many famous drummers. Uh, it was the kid in the candy store type of thing. Right, right. I, I remember uh, at, at night too, all the nighttime concerts and met Jim Chapin. Back then he was always – giving impromptu lessons either at the dw booth he would have the pad out explaining molar technique right and he'd have it at night at the nighttime show there'd be like other rooms that were just rooms where people were hanging in there was no concert and somehow him me and a few people got to talking and i had a pair of sticks and he was explaining something about the paraflittle diddle i remember which was it's a paradiddle diddle but there's a there's a flam in the middle uh-huh. and I just remember it so clearly, and, and he said something complimentary about nice technique, and I thought, oh, wow, maybe maybe I can do this. Like It was the first time a notable expert pro said something nice about 
my playing. And we were just playing on a tabletop with sticks, you know? Huh. It's so interesting how something so small can have such a lasting effect on on someone. Exactly. Know? And that was. I mean, I'm sure that years later he would not remember that. But that tiny little thing was like, oh, wow, maybe I can really do this. You don't know what you're doing, really. You learn and you pick things up. And uh, sometimes you need someone to just give you a little bit of a little bit of a push, mm-hmm. a bit of encouragement, even if they don't know they're doing it. That's important to remember too, as, as people move through their career, maybe become teachers or, you know, or clinicians or something like that, that like, there's been so many people who have mentioned on this podcast where a teacher said something or someone that they respected said something, whether it be, you're never going to be able to do this or, or, you know, you can do this, but you're going down the wrong path, whatever the case may be. Uh, and you know, your ass kicked a bit too, in certain situations, I'm not talking as bad as the movie whiplash, but you know, there's that too. There's both, there's the positive and the negative reinforcement, but they could both go towards something that will further you down. Mm -hmm. Talk about, talk about some of the, the, the negative reinforcement, like, like you said, like getting your ass kicked where, who, who were some of the people who did that for you? I guess, well, I could even take it back to high school, marching band. It was really intimidating. In ninth grade, I got put on snare drum. Usually you'd start on bass drum. You'd serve time as a bass drum guy because it's a big, heavy drum. And But you know what? Those guys, I got to hand it to them. They're playing, if you know anything about marching band, the bass drummers, they're playing these lines that are descending and ascending, and you have to really know how to read and listen because mm-hmm. you might play like the the four bass drummers might do something like a so each guy has three notes out of that sequence and they have to hit it just right. I, I never did play bass drum, but I always admired them for being able to do that. But when I got put on snare, and I was looking at all of these like the the music with the the six tuplets with mixed accents, I had never done any of that. Right. And I remember the song. It was Children of Sanchez, which I believe was a Chuck Mangione tune. And I thought, like, I am so in over my head. I'm getting thrown into the deep end, and I can't swim. But the instructor, his name was Gary, and some of the other guys, the older guys that I'm still friends with to this day, they helped me out. Yeah. And I was getting my ass kicked, but somehow I hung in there. And it was a really good thing. I know that I went through uh, a a point in my life when I was probably 16, 17 years old, where I sort of felt like I was like God's gift to the drumming world. And I was like, I'm the greatest. And, you know, like I will like I wanted to show off and everything. And then I got my ass kicked and was and, I, you know, it's funny. I was actually thinking about this last night uh, about the fact that now like as you get older and you can you can vouch for this too like as you get older you, you realize how much you still don't know right and you're yeah, like oh my god learn, the more you learn the more you realize there is to learn yeah and it's such an it's such an amazing feeling that you're like oh it's oh my god i got there's so much stuff that i get to, that i can still learn you know 20 years later or 30 years later and and still uh and still be thirsty for it but did you ever did you go through that period at all where you were sort of you had an ego or you were a bit conceited someone's like hey glenn oh yeah yeah (laughs) i really i really think so and uh there was some people i knew that were again connected to my friend michael dubin michael was a student of freddie gruber's Mm mm-hmm and I never studied with Freddie. I knew him a bit. And he was always cool. But there was a group of people that studied with him. And actually, my very first drum teacher ever was Bruce Becker. He was my first private teacher. And oh, nice. Is- I just saw Bruce on Saturday. Yeah, well, back way, way back, I was studying with him as a beginner. So we weren't doing any Freddie stuff then. But then in later years, I would run into him and some other guys. And this was like post-marching band. And what marching band can do to a player is it can stiffen you up. And yeah. Because it is, it by nature, marching uh, percussion, it's a stiff thing. You all have to be so like a, like a, you know, it's Swiss timing. It's like you're a precision Swiss watch and you have to play together. There's, it's just by nature, it's stiff. And I had to loosen up and people would tell me that and tell me that. 
And it kind of got to me. It's like, what are you talking about? I can play a paradiddle faster than you and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But then I slowly realized like, no, I think there's something to that. I'd see video of myself playing and it's like, yeah, that's kind of stiff. I got to loosen up. And I started paying more attention to that in myself and in other drummers, the mm-hmm. looseness and the flow. How do you how do you approach that when you come across, whether it be a student or just someone that is sort of coming to you uh, or that you may just cross paths with that has that has an ego or maybe if someone's listening that that feels like maybe they're being a little self-aware and realizing mm, maybe I do have a bit of an ego. You know, if it's a student and I feel that they're in the right place for it, like maybe they have that ego like you know, man, I, I like complicated stuff. And I just like listening to like, you know, dream theater and, and snarky puppy. And I, that's what I'm about, man. I don't like that simple stuff. I'm better than that. You know, it's that attitude. I say, okay, all right. Learn. I love rock and roll by Joan Jett. And they may not realize that that song will kick their ass. Mm-hmm. There's bars of three, four, there's bars of two, four. And I say, imagine you got to come in and you got to like sub last minute with Joan Jett or somebody doing that song and there's no rehearsal or there's one rehearsal. You got to get this right. And very few drummers will bother to pay attention and get it just right. To me, that's like a a song. It's on a list of songs that I would say are deceptively difficult or deceptively simple. What's the right term for that? Right, right. Where you you don't realize and you need to get your ass kicked in those kind of ways. Like, where you go, wow, I can't even play this simple song. What's wrong with me, you know? Mm-hmm. I and think, there's, there's other songs like that, but that was the first one that comes to mind. And I always think that that our ego is, obviously like our ego is the biggest enemy, but it a lot of times it's uh, how, it's, I'm trying to explain this the right way, but it, it's in a way like even when you go into the practice room and you, instead of working on this really quote unquote simple stuff, we either say, "Nah, I can play that," and and don't that, even don't yeah. even bother doing it. Yeah, right? when that's the wrong thing. Yeah, I got it. I got that covered. It's like, nah, maybe you don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's as a teacher, you know, that's your job, but you got to be diplomatic about it. You can't you can't be an a hole about it. Right. And then the, the the other side of that coin is when you go in, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Like when when you go in and you say. All right, I'm going to sit down and practice this thing. I've been playing for 20 years, but I, I like I really want to work on this thing and you do it for 2 minutes and you're like, "Man, this is why can I not play this? Like I'm a professional. I've been playing for 20 years. Why can't I play this?" And you get frustrated and and throw it to the side. Yeah, it's funny how that works. I've done that. I think most drummers have had that exact experience. And then sometimes I'll come back to whatever that idea is 6 months later, a year, 2 years later, or all of a sudden I could do it. Hmm. It's like, whoa, what happened? I, I put it aside. Maybe my mind and body weren't ready to do that yet. Maybe they didn't want to. Or sometimes you got to just make a decision when that moment happens where you can't do something. You say, I'm going to put in the time and I'm going to do this or nah, I don't need to do that. That's not essential for my playing. You know, like left foot clave. Do you do that? Me? Yeah. No, no. I never got onto that. And one of my mentors- I'm not, I'm not I, I, just to be clear, I wasn't laughing, like laughing at people who do that. I'm saying like, no, no I can't play a coffee with my left foot. Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's something you really got to put in the time. Yeah, it's hard. One of my mentors was Chuck Silverman, who mm-hmm. we unfortunately lost a few years ago. But he really steered me in the right direction in, in so many ways. And he really wanted me to start on left foot clave, and I never did. And this was going back. I mean, who was doing it at the time? I think he was one of the first guys in the States doing it at the time. I mean, Mm -hmm. Horacio Hernandez hadn't even come to America yet, but Chuck was taking his video camera, his VHS camera, down to Cuba and filming guys like Horacio and Jimmy Branley, and he put it out as drum set RCQ, but he wanted me to do this left foot clave. And I made that decision. I said, nah, I started seeing guys do it. You know, Phil Macherano, if you know him, he's a good buddy. Mm-hmm. And then he had Akira Jimbo. And of course, Horacio started playing more. I'm like, they got that covered. <laughs> I right. don't need to say, I don't need to say, hey, look, I could do it too. I didn't need to be part of me too on that, you know? Right, 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 right. You just, you got to make those decisions like double strokes on double bass. People ask, do you do double strokes with your feet? I'll say, well, I do with my right foot. 
Right. But not the left so much. <laughs> I haven't put in the time, you know? How often do you get calls to do double strokes on your feet? Right. Yeah. It's like, hey, we need a drummer for this gig, man. We need a badass drummer. He's got to hit hard, play well with the click, and uh, he's got to play double strokes with his feet. You know anybody? Right. <laughs> never never happens. Right. It sounds amazing when guys like Virgil and Thomas Lang do it. It's got a different sound from the single strokes, of course. I just haven't gone there or made that decision. Well, and I think it – this is my opinion, but I think that you should work on the skills that you want to get hired for. So like if you yeah. – you know, like Virgil has his thing and he does that and Thomas Lang has his thing and like Thomas Lang can play anything he wants with his feet or his hands. It doesn't matter. And but like but that's Thomas Lang's thing. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And another guy that did that was Pat Torpy. It came to him so naturally. The double strokes. Mm-hmm. Pat, another guy we fortunately lost a couple of years ago. I'm not familiar with Pat. He he was in Mr. Big. Oh, okay. He'd also played a lot of other gigs. Like I remember Robert Plant for a short stint. Uh, yeah, a good friend. Really, really amazing player. That's that, crazy. I've know, never even heard. His, I've never even heard his name before. Yeah, well, look him up I will. On, on YouTube. You'll see a lot of good stuff of his. And he was always into practicing no matter no matter what, no matter how many years he had been playing. But point is, you know, he did something like that. And again, I still looked at it, double strokes on double bass. I figured, nah, there's too much other stuff to practice. Like you said, you got to use your time. You got to budget your time wisely. Mm-hmm. Do you or did you uh... – focus on things that you knew you would either that you wanted to get hired for or you knew that would be valuable for you to get hired for and sort of put the other stuff by the wayside? You know, in a weird way, yeah, I kind of had a sense of what I needed to be able to do. It might have had something, well, no, I know it had a lot to do with my other main mentor that'd be greg bissonette Mm -hmm. i was his student when i was 18 19 years old i studied with him for about a year and a half and he ended up recommending me on my first pro gig and other things and i owe him everything but i saw that he was so great with playing with the click track just in lessons he put on the drum machine through the little pa system and I saw that. I said, okay, I got to get that together. It's like if you have an idea, you've got a lick, a pattern, a beat. I thought, well, I need to be able to execute that idea with a click track, with a metronome at a variety of tempos. And I figured out on my own to do something like play four bars of time and then four bars of a drum break using whatever ideas I was working on. Four bars of time, four of a drum break, just kept going back and forth at various tempos. And I felt that was good. That was practice well spent, practice time. Mm-hmm. Trying to figure out how to get this stuff going. Not not trying to max it out only to the fastest, but how slow can I do it? Right. Certain licks. You know, Greg was always great with that. Certain licks, like everyone likes to play the blushda. Mm-hmm. You know what that lick is, right? It was a Tony yeah. Williams lick. And I noticed that Greg really executed that well at a variety of tempos, including slow. I mean, it sounded killer at a slow tempo. Right. So I thought, yeah, I've got to be able to play things at a wide tempo range, a spectrum. And you kind of figure out after a while, like, okay, that type of lick, that works between 100 and 130 BPM. And you start categorizing things in that fashion, or at least I did. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think you – this may be a hard question to answer, but how do you think that you would you would prepare differently for a career now versus then? Like if you say you were 20, what do you think you would be – would you be working on the same things or would you be changing the way that, that you were practicing, approaching your career or things like that? It's so different now, right? In right. so many ways. There's in, – in some ways, there's too much. There's too much information. Spotify is a great thing, but – if I'm going to mention a certain drummer to check out to a student, you can't really mention a record anymore. You got to do it by track. So I'm afraid if I was 20 now and trying to figure out all this, I would be inundated with too much, mm-hmm. too much information, all the YouTube clips and people teaching things. And you've got all the clips from the various instructional videos from the last 
30 plus years. It's, it's all out there. At least, at least back before YouTube was big and everything, you could take a record and you could digest it. Right. And you could just listen to it, soak it up. You knew who played on it and who produced it. Nowadays, if I was 20, I'd really, I would hope I would have a good attention span to focus on one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And I'd want to get with a teacher that was doing what I would want to do. Like, that's the thing. If you want to be a pro player, get with a teacher that's a pro player, not just someone that does the the big band thing years ago. That That's a great kind of teacher to have, but you want to learn from somebody that's doing and in the field that you aspire to be in. Right. So I would hope I'd find someone good like that for guidance. And I'd hope I wouldn't be too distracted by, you know, social media and yeah. everything else in life. There's a lot out there now. I mean, a part of it is like you, like you said, you need a, you need a tour guide sort of right to like help you navigate what's good. And, and when I say what's good and what's bad, I don't mean like taste, but I mean, what's, what's correct, what's yeah. not correct, what, you know, what's important, what's not important, what you're going to get hired for what, and sort of like help you tailor what it is you want the, the arc of your, your career to, and whether that's a pro career or semi-pro or weekend warrior career, it doesn't matter, but what you want the, the arc of your career and your playing to be like. Yeah. You'd want someone that would give you the straight deal on the business. Like I'm in LA, born and raised. I get students, they come to me, they want to spend maybe half the time of the lesson talking about the politics of the biz. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me because they want to know like what happens on an audition. How do you get the audition? Why didn't you get that certain gig? And I would talk about how, you know, I'd walk into a room of a certain audition and no, I didn't have the gig right away because I just got that vibe that I wasn't one of those guys. You know, it's, it's the, it's the keep it in the family idea. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel like I was a part of that family. And, and that's, that's the kind of thing where people may not realize that, that not as many gigs are going to happen from a cattle call style audition. It's going to be something of a connection that you have, like, like the bro hookup, I call it. And I talk about <laughs> it in lessons, you know, then the cis hookup to be politically correct, but you know what I'm saying? And, and I end up talking about a lot of the political side and it's, it's opening to a mm -hmm. lot of people that think, Oh yeah, if you're a badass player, you're going to get gigs. It's like, no, not necessarily. You have to look like you belong and people are more comfortable with those that they know. Right. It's just how it is. Yep. People it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. There's been guys that have auditioned 50 guys auditioned for some pop artists and some guy that didn't know anybody got the gig because they liked his hair. Right. <laughs> and and I'm not even exaggerating. The stories would blow your mind about why certain people got gigs. Out of all the gigs you've gotten, how many of them have been from cattle calls and how many of them have been from the bro hookup? From cattle calls, uh, zero. Right. Yeah. I, I can't stand them. They're such a guessing game. It's like, look, just tell me how you want this played and I'll play it. But you know, that guy did it like this and that was wrong and nobody likes that. Right. Just to let everyone know, like if you're not familiar with the term cattle call, it's literally a bunch of drummers go and sit in front of a, and sit in front of a couple people in a, you know, at a table with a band and you, uh, you play and they judge you and there's how many people, how many drummers, you know, sometimes there's 20, 50, a hundred, whatever. Yeah. It could be ridiculous. Uh, I, I've never gotten one through a cattle call. Now there have been auditions where there's a short list of guys. Mm -hmm. This is, this is common. Like there's a certain gig, like this is how I got the gig with Elliot. Yamin. He had a huge hit in 07, 08. He was an American idol second runner up in 07. And it was a pop R and B gig. I was glad to get it to show that I wasn't just some rock guy, but my buddy Russell, my very good friend, he recommended me and maybe just me, but each guy in the band was asked, you know, give us a name or two. Mm -hmm. And this was 07. So YouTube was pretty firmly established and I got wise early to looking at the live version because they already had been touring for a couple months and now they needed to get a new drummer. I said, I want to come in and just be like, ready to wear, you know what I mean? Like ready to go, like make them feel like they could have played a show that night. Mm -hmm. And so I got on YouTube and the endings were 
definitely different. The record was programming. It was a pop thing. So how did that drummer approach it? What are the tempos? Are they different? Are there different arrangements? And the answer to all that was yes. There was extra horn hits and extra things where a verse would start a little later than on the record. And I had all that. And so I put in the work. But number one is my buddy was on the gig. Right. He would have never gotten the phone call if he wasn't. Yeah, that's right. And uh, that kind of audition yes i have gotten the gigs but i'll tell you like way back i did the avril lavigne audition and uh rodney is her drummer rodney holmes from new york he's spectacular player and it made sense that he got the gig and i I was happy for him great dude but it was just an interesting thing back then this was around 2006 and it was at a big rehearsal studio in north hollywood and she was looking for everything back then keys second guitar because she already had one guitar player the musical director but keys second guitar bass drums i think even backup vocalists so i showed up at the rehearsal place and basically it was like like oh hi what's up everybody i know (laughs) (laughs) you know that's that was the vibe and there were clearly two sets of people because i had taught at musicians institute on and off for 20 years there were the recent mi graduates and then there was the more experienced players people past the age of 30 i guess you could say Mm -hmm. and yeah it was a lot of people avril herself was not there there was a stand-in singer who was actually someone i was in a band with for a minute interesting enough but but it was just like how do you even figure out who you want in the gig when you've got a hundred people outside ready to go in and play two songs each you know right and you have a hundred drummers and you're drummer number 37 like how are they even going to remember yeah i don't know if there was a hundred drummers that could have been total 30 35 i have no idea that's still a lot yeah but no she put together a great band and her musical director now who is the keyboardist that got the gig back then he's one of my best buddies and he's still on the gig and it's been it's been good for him nice and it was just an interesting thing that's like a story i feel like you know i could talk about it. people say you know don't talk about auditions and don't talk about who was there that's that's taboo that's not politically correct it's like the hell with that you know people want to hear this stuff yeah it's important to know i mean how how are you how is anyone ever supposed to learn I mean, I guess you learn like everybody else does and you just kind of go through and fall on your face and all that kind of stuff. But if you want to, if you want to do the research and you want to learn like that, that information should be out there. I'd be interested. But, but people say, don't talk about it. A lot of it has to do with the people that were there that did not get the gig. Right. You know, you don't want that info out. But you know, when I was really just first starting out doing auditions, I auditioned for a certain very very well-known legendary classic rock band that I won't name, but I, uh, I auditioned, there was a short list and it was a situation where the drummer leaving the band recommended some people, gave him a bunch of names. That was cool. Mm -hmm. So he was nice enough to give my name. I went in, I was happy with how I played and I was talking to somebody else. I said, Oh yeah. And I saw so-and-so at the whatever audition the other day, trying to keep all names out of this. But that got back to this guy that I said was at the audition. And I got an angry phone call from this drummer. Really? Because he was on another gig. Uh. Anybody to know that he was auditioning, cheating potentially on his gig that he had. And so here's this guy yelling at this kid, you know, me. <laughs> if that was today, I'd be, I'd be like, dude, stop. You're right. not invisible. If you're going to go out and audition for other bands, don't be surprised if word leaks out. You know, I didn't do it on purpose. Right. Right. You you decided to go audition, <laughs> not me. Exactly. You know, I didn't. Yeah, I if didn't you're not happy that. with the current gig, it's not my fault. Right. If you're looking for a top-of-the-line snare, then look no farther than the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series. These are designed to combine sound concepts to create unique and personal instruments for the demanding player. They come in three unique variations, and they all have their own unique sound quality to them. You have the Heartbreaker, which is dark and rustic and throaty. You have the Cherry Bomb, which is vintage, controlled, and precise. And then you have the Equinox, which will give you that classic, bright, articulate sound. To learn more about the 
Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series, go to mapexdrums.com. Hey, do yourself a favor and check out Promark's Select Balance Drumsticks. These sticks give players the ability to fine-tune their standard stick model to fit their playing style. Let me give you an example. If you play rock or country or metal, check out the forward balance. These are front-weighted and give you enhanced power and speed. If you are playing jazz or funk or gospel, then check out the rebound balance. These are rear-weighted and gives you more finesse and more agility. Plus, they're made by Promark, which you know you're going to get a quality product because they control the entire process from the forest to the finished drumstick. Plus, they're paired by pitch and by weight, so there's zero guesswork when you're grabbing that stick out of your stick bag. Do yourself a favor. Check them out by going to Promark.com. Talk about the bro hookup a little bit. Like, it's such a it's such a hard career path. But the interesting thing, so I I heard uh, on I was on LinkedIn the other day, and I heard which like no musician is ever on on LinkedIn. Yeah. But I own another business, and I do a lot of right, stuff. If you're on a musician, that. don't don't promote your LinkedIn page. <laughs> right, it doesn't. It's not going to work. But I use it for my for my media company. But um, that but, makes sense. But one of the interesting things was that. I forget what the percentage was, but it was a really high percentage of people who've gotten jobs. It's like 45 or 55% of people who get a job at a company got that job through a friend of theirs or know someone who works at the company or whatever. And there was this, there was this idea of, of, um, of networking, how, how people are saying that they're doing a lot of networking, but it turns out that they're all staying within their their sort of sphere of influence and staying within their network. And what LinkedIn is trying to do is like get people to reach out beyond that network. So answer like cold emails and all that kind of stuff. Right. Sure. And I thought about it with the music industry. I was like, it's the same way. Like if you look at any of the guys who are doing like, you know, if you look at like Brian Frazier Moore, right? He plays with Justin Timberlake and all the people that he plays with all go through Adam Blackstone and that's all a network, right? And it's seemingly yeah. like there's it's all these cir- people. It's a, it's just a circle. Yeah. Um. So this is a very long question and I apologize, but uh, but how do you how do you suggest that people start to build that network or start to get inside of those circles? Because it's, uh, again, you can't like go on LinkedIn and, and network, right? You can join jam card, which I recommend, uh, if you know, if, yeah. if, you, if you can, jam card is, is cool. I got a page on there just cause it's cool to navigate through other people's pages and Elmo's got a, a really nice thing that he's built. I right. like the idea. Um, but, but outside of that, what is the, I mean, that's like the, that's like the million dollar question, right? How do you get into these circles and how do you get recommended for, for gigs? Because people want to work with people who they know, like, and trust. Well, I think that dovetails with the earlier question that you asked about what would you do if you were 20 today? Because nowadays you have the ability to reach everybody to show them what you're all about. Uh, the problem is so does everybody else. Right. So you've got this sea of noise and how do you cut through the noise and get through to those people? You know, back in the day, I wanted to show people what I could do and what I was about. So what I did was I, I had met this great guitar player who also played bass and he was very diverse in the styles that he could cover. And so I hired him and went into the studio and we did a bunch of like mini tunes and I had it all written down. I want to do a funk groove. I want to do like a really straight up eighth note rock thing. I want to do a rock ballad. I want to do a sort of ska thing. And then I had odd time, a drum solo to show off. And we do all these mini tunes or just, you know, sections of songs. And I would pick what I liked and I had to get with the engineer another day and we had to crossfade all these together and put it together. And I think the whole thing with all the styles crossfading in and out of each other went for like seven minutes, I'm right. guessing. And then I had to go duplicate it on cassette and make a hundred cassettes and hand out the cassettes with a business card. That was social networking back then. All right. For those of you who don't know, cassettes are these things that you put <laughs> in this machine. <laughs> yeah. But I, I knew what I had to do. Right. And, and I'm thinking, how do you, how do you let people know? How do you send a message? This is what I'm about. Right. And that's what I did. I just, I knew handing out a bunch of these cassettes, a lot of them would get thrown away, never listened to. Sure. And 
that's what I did. But, you know, at the time I was Greg Bissonette's student, or maybe I had just finished lessons with him because he was going back on tour. But anyways, I gave that cassette to Greg and he knew that I could play. We had done lessons for a year and a half, but I swear the next day he actually called me and he said, Hey, do you know who Tony McAlpine is? Guitar player. I just gave your name to his manager. And, uh, that became my first pro gig. Amazing. Yeah. And I, I wanted to get the gig cause I wanted to make Greg feel like he made the right choice in recommending me. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess maybe the demo tape I gave Greg, it made him hear me in the context of a band, mm-hmm. something like that. But people need to hear you do that in the context of, of an ensemble. Nobody got a gig from playing a drum solo ever. So you can upload videos of yourself to YouTube playing all you want, the drum solos, you're not going to get a gig from that. You're going to impress other drummers, maybe. Right. How, like, I, I'm so glad that you said that because how, I can't name five drummers who are, who are, who are trying to get gigs that have a YouTube page with them playing rock, funk, jazz, fusion, this, that, programming, all, like, build your, build your resume and put it on YouTube. Like, well, or not your resume, but build, like show your, show what you can do, right? That's exactly what it is. It's, it's your calling card. It's your business card. In fact, don't have a business card that you hand out amateur that just, that's desperate. Don't do it. You don't need to have any testimonials on a website from other people because now you should just have something where people could go online and hear you in the right context. You ask about the the sort of consulting side of things. How would you get gigs and network today? Well, you can network. And if your name gets thrown out there for a gig, if you get recommended to an artist or their management, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to pull their phone out of their pocket and they're going to look you up on YouTube mm-hmm. and they better find the right stuff. Right. They're going to go, no, 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 no. That's not what we're looking for next. Right. And you're done. Or they're going to go to your Instagram page and scroll through your Instagram page. And every post is you playing a solo or chops around the kit and everything. And it's like, well, okay, well, I don't see anything here where this person can play a song. doesn't have to be like some pocket groove thing. Can they play a tune? Can they play with a band? Can they, you know, there's a best is they should see you playing actual gigs. Anyone can play to a cover in their bedroom or their practice room, but it's best that they see you playing an actual gig. That's why it's great to film video record everything. Mm-hmm. And then you cherry, you cherry pick what looks and sounds good. Right. There was a, there's an artist, uh, his name's Chase Jarvis. He's a, he's a photographer and he, he wrote this article about, he, it was called the other 50%. And he was saying, yeah, okay. All the stuff that you do at home, you know, you're perfecting your craft or whether you're, if you're a photographer, you're working on pictures, you know, if you're a musician, you're working on your craft, your songwriting, your this, your that. But then the other 50% of that is going out into the community and being part of the community yeah. and not just sitting at home and like spamming everyone on social media and trying to get a gig out of it. Like, go no, that's to- obnoxious and nobody right. wants to see that. Right. Right. Like go to go support people at gigs, go, you know, hire people to play, like start a band and hire people to play with you. Like all these things of like supporting the community that you want to be in versus like, I'm just going to stand back and spam everyone and hopefully someone will pull me into the community. No, that'll develop a bad reputation quickly. For you sure. But the the tools of marketing yourself, they're so easy now. I mean, all you need is a phone in some ways, but you, you don't need to go to those lengths that some drummers do. And I'm impressed by it. You know, the guys that have the their practice or their studio and everything's mic'd up and they do the drum covers some of those drummers, their goal is to gain notoriety and fame through YouTube, and that's it. They're not trying to get gigs. You don't need to be one of those drummers that is trying to build subscribers and get a million views on everything. You just need to have something that can show that you could do this, and then you have to prove that you could do the hang. You know, That is the other 50% is the attitude, and right. people want to know if they're going to travel with you on a tour in a – a van, an RV, a bus, whatever, that they're going to be able to deal with you and stand you 24 hours a day. Right, right. That, and, that's where the bro hookup comes in because yep. they could vouch for your character. Like with Alice Cooper, Tommy Hendrickson absolutely is the guy that got me into that circle. Speaking of circles, 
And he was also able to say, you know, I'm not crazy. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm responsible. I'll come in. And, you know, he's a New Yorker. He's like, dude, he'll come in. He'll know the songs better than all you guys. You know, that <laughs> kind of thing. And so that's pressure. You know, it's like, okay, now I really got to deliver. But when someone recommends you, you got to take it seriously. Yeah, for sure. The I would, and I would piggyback that too with if, uh, if, if you want to be, if you want to build subscribers on YouTube and have an Instagram channel and all that kind of stuff, then do that. Cool. If that's, if that's the goal and you don't care about going and playing gigs and touring and all that stuff, then that's cool. But if you do want to be doing that. It is a viable career, you know, like Casey Cooper, I know him a bit and he's been able to build up quite a following. And I think some of those guys like him, they've been able to monetize it in a certain way. There's so many ways to find your niche in the business these days. Yep. I think I I think that uh and not to beat the dead horse, but I think that people are misrepresenting themselves on on social media where they're saying I want gigs but they're not showcasing skills that get them gigs. Yeah, it's you true. Know? It's true. I mean, that's that's something where even just talking on the phone to a prospective student and while I'm on the phone with them, I'll type their name into YouTube and a lot of times I end up saying like I'm not finding much here on you. You've got to really, you've got to change that. If mm-hmm. I type the name in page one of the search results, it needs to show me something that makes me take you seriously as a musician, not just a drummer. Right. You know, I did a clinic at, at MI a couple months ago, Musicians Institute mm-hmm. in Hollywood. And that's a different kind of clinic from a music store, I think, because a music store will have everybody from pros, semi-pros, hobbyists, beginners, so there's got to be an entertainment factor. But at MI, it's a vocational school. So I said, you know, there's a lot of drummers they could be described as like sick drummers. Like, oh, man, that dude is a sick drummer. That guy shreds. He's badass. And I'll think, I'll think like, okay, that's great. But is that drummer employable? I said, that's the word of the day, employable. Think about your drumming in terms of can it get you employed mm-hmm. on a gig? And all the shredding and sick drumming it might not be what will facilitate that to happen. Right. I, I don't, I don't, I talk about this a lot, but I just, I don't understand where, I don't understand where the, where the disconnect is. Like where are people hearing or, or why do people think that that's when it, that's what's going to get them the gig? Or is it just because people see people with big numbers on social media and they think, yeah, it's all that. I think it's all that. And of course, just when you're young, like, look, I got into drumming because of, because of rush, mm-hmm. Neil, this technical drummer playing this crazy drum solo that first made me attracted to the drums. But then I'm really glad I also equally got into Zeppelin and Bonham. But that that's what made me want to do this. But then you slowly realize, oh, yeah, you got to be able to just play a song and play it the same way every time and don't step all over the vocalists. You get older, you start loving Charlie Watts like mm-hmm. I did. And it, it, it is the, the problem with the, the social media, the, the view counts. And Guitar Center had the drum off for so many years, and that became this huge goal because that drum off became a great cultural event in the drum community. It was huge. Yeah. And I actually did the drum off. I won the Guitar Center drum off way back, early 90s, before it blew up and became what it did, this big national event. But even back then, I remember thinking like, yeah, this is great to win this and other drummers will recognize that but i know this won't necessarily get a gig and, why did, and I, why did they stop the drum said, i said if i don't win this year i did it two years in a row i said if i don't win this year i'm never doing this again because this is the most high pressure <laughs> right. performance i've ever done and i had a headache afterwards and fortunately i won it and i had i was done with it you know i i judged it a few times but yeah it's like a room full of drummers with their arms crossed and there's guys <laughs> right. judging you and Man, talk about pressure. And you got to get up and just play a solo. You're not in the middle of a one-hour set and at the 30-minute mark, you're nice and warmed up and playing a solo. You just get up and you play for four or five minutes on a kit that isn't yours and you got like five minutes to adjust it. Oh, my God. Forget about it. <laughs> and I remember that the judges uh, – man, people like Eric Singer and Chad Smith and uh, Pat Torpy. That's how I first met him. Okay. Um, uh, all of the judges, I found this out later. I think some friend of mine took a look at the score sheets 
somehow they were just sitting on a table. Every judge had me as the winner except one. It was Peter Chris. <laughs> he, he, he had me maybe second or third. He didn't like me as much. I thought, oh, that's cool. You know, he, he was a judge that night and that's where I had met him. And it was just, it was a crazy, a crazy event and it was cool. And then that became years later, this thing that kids strive towards was, oh, I want to get in the GC drum off and do that. And that contributed towards the shredding online. Yeah. It's interesting because all the people, I kind of, I look at like the drum off kind of like, uh, kind of like American Idol where there's like a couple people who like have, have built great careers after winning it uh but then there's a lot who like you know you don't you never even hear about them anymore it's a good analogy yeah you know there's a couple who like break through but but the rest of you know a a large percentage of them just go back to sort of doing whatever they were doing before can't all be kelly clarkson all right exactly (laughs) or some of them had a very bright shining career for 60 seconds i mean yeah i Played with one that had a very big hit, but it turned out to be a one-hit wonder. It, mm-hmm. it was a great experience, and it was the pop world. Right. But, you know, second record came out. The first single, radio wasn't feeling it. Done. Yeah. Philip Phillips won American Idol, I think, didn't he? Who? Philip Phillips. And and he, I think he's had like a – he still had like a decent – he's still touring, you know. There's definitely, there's definitely quite a few that have been able to have a career out of that, whether it's – touring or doing something on broadway or vegas yeah right absolutely yeah i do you know why they stopped the uh the drum off uh i don't know um yeah, i don't know either maybe it got to be so out of control and expensive that it just wasn't cost effective anymore i really couldn't say yeah that's interesting i'd be interested to know why maybe we'll talk maybe donnie donnie grindler can can fill us in and let us know oh uh, yeah <laughs> great teacher at mi Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's yeah. a he's a GC now. Oh, he is. See, I didn't even know that. What's yeah, his position yeah. there? He's uh he's heading up all of the the GC lessons like around the country. Oh, well, that makes sense. He's had yeah. all the years of doing the lesson plans at MI. He's perfect for that gig. A great player too. He is a great player. Great dude. He's just Donnie, if you're listening, we love you. You're an, yeah. you're, you're an amazing guy. Um so speaking of teaching, you do teach while you're when you're in town? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Um, on the short breaks, like right now, this is a two and a half week break from tour. It's not like I put the word out. I do have some gigs over this break and maybe a recording session, but it's it's a good problem. I always refer to it as a fortunate problem. With Alice, we've been working a lot because he mm-hmm. wants to work a lot. And I do both Alice and the Hollywood Vampires. And between those two gigs, I've been gone. Right. Quite a bit. Uh, plus whatever else takes me out of town. So when I am in town, yeah, I'll do private lessons. I got a place with a couple of drum sets set up where I do that. But lately I haven't been able to as much. Got you. And once in a while on tour, I'll schedule a, a day of private lessons at a specific drum shop or a mm-hmm. master class or a, a clinic, whatever. But, um, yeah, I, I do enjoy the the teaching private because I learn stuff. You know, if it's a student that's just out of high school, I'm learning about what they're into and how they're getting their information. Right, uh, that makes sense. I think you you learn more as a as a teacher than you do as a student for sure. Yeah, sometimes you do. And what about social media? Where can everyone go and see your your chops and all your uh, your drum fills and and uh, <laughs> paradiddles at two forty with your bass pedal? Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, if you go to my Instagram, you'll see a picture of me and my parents celebrating my dad's 80th birthday last night. But Nice. Yeah. But of course, on tour, there's plenty of great things to always post. There's never a shortage of content. But I'm on Instagram. I think if you just type my name in, but it's Glenn underscore Sobel. And same on Twitter, at Glenn underscore Sobel. Facebook, Drummer Glenn. Uh, I think that covers it. And I'll, I'll, we'll find it. We'll, we'll dig them up and, uh, and put them all in the show notes and everything too. So people can find them. So, and, um, but Glenn, thanks so much for, uh, for doing this. I know you and I had sort of emailed back and forth a long time ago about, about getting you on. So, and I'll, and these things, sometimes they take time, you know, sometimes it takes three years to, to get someone on. <laughs> yeah. It really does. So like it, it's, it's all it's, good. It's just about keeping, touching base, keeping in contact and making it happen. Exactly. But you know, people that are listening, I hope that they, 
come out to an Alice show or a Hollywood Vampire show soon. Hollywood Vampires, if people don't know, that's also Alice on lead vocals, but that's Johnny Depp on guitar, and it's Joe Perry from Aerosmith on guitar. And uh, then we got Chris Wise on bass, Buck Johnson, Aerosmith keyboardist, and Tommy Hendrickson, the producer of the whole thing. And that's been a really fun gig with a new record that just came out a few months ago that uh, I played on the whole thing of. So if you want to check that out, you can stream it on Spotify. It's crazy. You don't have to like buy a CD. Right. But yeah, we got a lot of Alice dates coming up. We'll be out all of November in the States, starting in Florida. Nice. We're way up the East Coast. And uh, God, what else? They announced uh, Australia, New Zealand for February next year. Those dates are up. And they also... Yesterday, I think, announced our dates for April. There are like a lot of Canadian. And that, that keeps on rolling, man. Alice is 71, and he's got more energy than all of us. That's great, man. How did I not know that, that, that Depp was in Hollywood Vampires either? I don't, I don't know how I didn't yeah, know that. The association with Johnny started in 2011 with Alice and Johnny. There's a movie, a Tim Burton movie called Dark Shadows. Yeah. And yeah, cool movie based on an old English TV show about a vampire. And there's a whole sequence, there's a whole scene with Alice Cooper playing Ballad of Dwight Fry on this uh, big, it's like, it's like a ball they have in this mansion. And so when Alice filmed his part in that movie, we were in London on tour and we took about five, six days off. And during the end of that five, six days, there was a last minute club gig booked in London at the 100 club and they put tickets on sale and it sold out in 60 seconds. And, and then we got word that day that Johnny Depp is going to come down and play guitar on schools out and on I'm 18. It's like, Oh wow. He plays guitar. Great. And he huh. came to sound check and rehearsal and we were, we rehearsed at sound check. We played the gig and it was this great viral video moment. And it got in the national Enquirer, or whatever people magazine. And that's where Johnny and Alice, really hit it off got you and there'd be events he'd join us at and then i guess alice's manager had an idea one time this could be a thing mm -hmm. a record a tour and here we are there you have it i like it well uh i will i'll link up to all the stuff that we that we talked about make sure people can find you people can find the dates they can they can come out and see you and all that kind of stuff and uh i appreciate you doing this man it's always great to to talk to somebody of of your caliber to share their experiences and, and, and talk about the industry as it is now and, and the way that it used to be and how we can move, uh, you know, successfully into the future. So I appreciate your time. Hey, well, likewise, before we went on the air here, you told me about some of the other people you've interviewed and I'm totally humbled, humbled to be included in that list of great players that you've had on the show. Great. I'm glad that we talked about the things that we did. Great questions that, led to important information and i don't know everything i ask questions and the more you ask the more you learn but i'm glad we talked about practical things for aspiring players for sure yeah i and as long as uh someone leaves with one little nugget of information i feel like that we've done our job and and you can go anywhere and find where to you know, how to, <clears throat> how to play a paradiddle or how to do this or how to do that. But this stuff is uh, not, I don't feel like it gets talked about as much as it should. So I'm, I'm glad that you sort of opened up the, opened up the doors and, and let us behind the scenes and, and are willing to talk about it so openly and candidly. It wouldn't be worth doing unless I could talk about some real stuff. So agree the platform. For sure. Glenn, thank you again. I appreciate you, man. Safe travels out there on the road. And I hope to talk to you again soon. You got it, Nick. There you have it, the one and only Glenn Sobel. And you can always find the show notes just by going to drummersresource.com. Find this episode on there and all the show notes are there, the links to Glenn or whatever episode you're listening to. And please do me a favor, if you haven't already, leave a rating, leave a review uh, on iTunes. It's really easy. It takes about a minute to do and it'll help the podcast show up higher in the search results and lets people know that this podcast is cool. And also, I'd love to hear your feedback on this. I'm thinking about doing a live event here in LA, a small event, maybe like 20 people and some sort of like 360 event where it's not just a drum clinic, but it is a group of 
pro drummers who can sit down with you and talk to you about different aspects of your career. So it could be your playing, it could be about touring, it could be about getting gigs, it could be about how to increase your social media presence, it could be about how to network, how to meet band directors. So I think that there's different sort of areas of of where uh, you need to you need to pay attention for your career. And if I can find someone who's an expert in every one of those areas. I think that would be a really cool thing to do for like a day or two. So if that's just something that you're interested in, I'm not sure if I'm going to do it or not. And I don't know if anyone would even show up for it. Uh, but I've been thinking about it for a while now. And I'd like to see if maybe anyone wanted to do it. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, just shoot me an email, nick at drummersresource.com. And we'll see who's interested. And if we can get, you know, the right people and, and or you know, the right uh, drummers to come. And then enough people to, to come where we can at least, you know, break even or something. I think that would be really cool. So let me know. Hit me up at nick at drummersresource.com. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.